You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Good morning. My name is Amelia Paris, and I've been a part of Free City Church for around eight years or so. Um, I'm a part of the Maddox-Riley City Group, and I serve on Slides team and with Free City Kids. Uh, Today's scripture is found on page 763 in the Bibles under your seats. Um, It's Matthew 8, 28 through 34. Jesus heals two men with demons. And when he came to the other side, to the country of the Gerardians, Two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that by. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them, and the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of the pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned into the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what, they had, what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. God, I just want to thank you for today. Uh, I thank you for uh, the scriptures um, that we have your word alive today. Um, God, I pray over our this word and our sermon today. Um, I pray for Casey as he or whoever is preaching today um, that they, um, yeah, that they leaned into you, God, this week, and um, that they really lifted you up um, in the scriptures today. God, I pray for Central Middle School. Um, I pray for the future um, of Central. I pray for the plans that you have for this place. I pray for the people and the administrators, the teachers, the children, um, everyone that it impacts. God, I pray for them every day. Um, I pray that um, as we're in the sixth season that you are with them, uh, you're with the families um, as they take each day um, in and out. God, I pray that um, through all of this, that they find peace in you. Um, I pray that um, you continually dwell in these halls and in the lives of everyone here. Um, God, I thank you again, um, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Well, good morning. Uh, My name's Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And, uh, man, we are working through uh, the Gospel of Matthew And if you look back at where we've been, man, we have just had like, uh, Jesus is expressing power over things just left and right. And so it's amazing the disciples, and they are trying to figure out what's going on, and they're trying to figure out um, how do they view Jesus, what is Jesus really like, who is Jesus. And so that question keeps getting haunted, who is this man Jesus? And man, that's really like, When we're walking through Matthew, we're kind of asking that question over and over, like, who was Jesus? Like, like, like who, who was Jesus? Like, why are we still talking about Jesus? Like, if he died on a cross, does it still matter? Why are we still talking about that? What hope is there for us in the resurrection? And when we read stories like this that puts us in things that make some of us uncomfortable, talking about demonic possession and like spiritual influence, like what do we do with that? You know, uh, man, I, you need to pray for me in this sermon. Man, I kind of had a crazy week. And so really praying for me in this sermon is praying for you because I'm about to preach this sermon to you. Um, so, I mean, embrace the selfishness of that and just go with it. But man, it's just kind of a crazy week. My computer's been kind of acting up. Like, I've wondered if it's possessed. Um, but I've got a friend, and he does computer stuff, and he just said, no, man, it's, it's a late 2015, or I'm sorry, early 2015 computer. You need to upgrade and I was like, hey, why did you emphasize the early? Like, I would be offended if someone emphasized the late 43. I mean, I would be super offended by that. 
And so like, and then he, he looked like, I, I use Microsoft Word, don't judge, I, I love it, I can't get away from it. Um, and uh, whatever Microsoft Word I have, they don't even support it anymore, and so it's just not working very well. And so I don't know if I can blame that uh, on Satan. And then on top of that, man, I lost my truck keys, and I've got to blame someone, not myself, you know. So I, I, you know, I quizzed the whole family. I was like, Anna, have you taken my truck for a joyride? Just tell me right now. You know, all just different calamities. You know, we, we had a, a basketball tournament, uh, which wasn't Satan's fault. That was our fault. We signed crews up for it, and so that was all over. And then in, in preparing for this sermon, man, I got sucked into a textual criticism vortex. And like I wrote out like eight pages of notes, and you do not want me to preach eight pages of notes. Uh, but I just kind of got sucked into this thing where I'm like, oh, no, this is important. We've got to clarify this. And then I kind of got done with it, and I was like, man, we don't need any of that. We're just going to preach what the Bible says. And so like all of life has difficulties. All of life has things that pull us away from what we should be about, from the kingdom of God and evangelism and just experiencing God himself. Like Life has a way of pulling these things apart, of pulling us away. And the question is, what part of that is me? What part of that is the brokenness in this world? And what part of that is this? spiritual influence, demonic forces that Jesus explicitly has told us that he has come to still kill, steal, kill, and destroy. And so as we look at this, like this scene, we want to wrestle with these things. And so the scene of the, of the gatherings, I had to really practice uh, saying these words right, the gatherings, it's hard, I got a D in Hebrew, so it's really, really hard. But the scene of the gatherings comes on the heels of Jesus stopping the storm on the Sea of Galilee. And it comes on the heels of Jesus healing every kind of disease that came among him. And so Jesus is expressing his power over all of life. And so if you look at this, chapter 8, just kind of look at the headings. Like up in verses 1 through 17, Jesus is Lord over all diseases. Like Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us, has cured every disease that was brought to him, ranging from paralysis and leprosy to a simple fever. Like, what does that mean? Like, like that means there is no suffering that Jesus is not willing to step into and touch you. There is no suffering beyond the power of Jesus. And so we can take all of these things to him. Like, this is flabbergasting. Like Matthew is just recording what's happening and he's like, man, everything. Like if you look at the very end, like verses 15, 16, and 17, it says, man, people were bringing all kinds of sickness. They were bringing all kinds of demon possessed and Jesus healed them all. But then we step into this other you know, section. We step into this other section starting in verse 23 when Jesus stills the storm. He's the Lord over every storm. The disciples encounter this terrifying storm that was raging out of control and they were desperate. Like, what is going on? How do we survive this thing? And so they just do what we would have done. They just freak out. Like they look around, experienced sailors, and they say, this is beyond the reach of our control. We are bailing water. We have done everything that we know how to do. And so let's wake up Jesus and let's ask him. And so look at verse 27. In verse 27, it says, after Jesus stood up, he questioned them about their faith. Like, don't you trust me? And maybe he was a little like, you know, like a little smirky where he's like, what, you're afraid of all this? You know, I mean, maybe it was, I don't know, maybe. But like he questions them and then he says this, he, he just simply hushes the storm and the storm stops and they ask this question, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? Who is Jesus? And the Bible's already told us he is Emmanuel, which means God with us. And more and more they're starting to see what that means. What does it mean that God is with us? Like Jesus stood up, he didn't pray to the Father and like intercede, like let's have this storm stop, please God, you know, spare their lives. He stood up and with a word he spoke and the elements obeyed. Which kind of made something even more scary than the storm. See, we, we expect storms to put us in danger. 
But if Jesus told them to cross the sea and got in the boat with them and they followed him and he can stop a storm with his words, then it means that it's not just that storms that will put us in dangerous places, but it means God himself, the God who says he'll never leave us nor forsake us, the God who says all things work out for our good and for God's glory, the God that says I will never ever leave you. The God who says, all promises find their yes in me and I now give them to you. That God will lead us into things that are uncontrollable for us. See, they saw this storm was powerful and out of control, but Jesus is far more powerful that he just hushes it. And they didn't have any control over him either. The God who can stop the storm sent his friends into the storm. Absolute control. Absolute power. But then this week, Jesus shows his lordship over demons. Like the demons see who Jesus is clearer than we do. They look at the who, what, when, and where of Jesus, and they have a good grasp. And so if you look at this text just a little bit, look at this. It says, first, they saw the who of Jesus. In verse 29, it says, they approached him and said, son of God. And so they knew the identity of Jesus, but they also knew the what of Jesus. Like Jesus was in charge with all power. Look look at verse 29. He goes on to say, have you come to torment us? Like when you torment something, you have like complete control over something and you just want to do what you want to do. And so if you're like the oldest sibling, you like right now, you tormented your younger siblings when you had control over them. And you may not remember it because if you're the tormentor, you don't really remember it. Your younger siblings, they remember it very, very well. They saw the what of Jesus. Matter of fact, in verse 31, they begged him. You see, you beg people who are in charge, who have power over you. Or look at verse 31. They also saw the win of Jesus. Like They say, have you come before the appointed time? They're saying, are you going to exercise your power right now, right here? And then they even knew the where of Jesus. He had power then and there. They didn't say, Jesus, you only have power in the dominion of heaven or on the Jewish side of the lake. This is our side. They knew that he had power then and there. And so Matthew 8 shows us that Jesus has absolute power over demonic forces and that they are at work in our world and he has absolute power here and now over every ruler, authority, cosmic power, dark spiritual force of evil. And I took all those words and all those phrases from Ephesians 6 and it's trying to show that this organized effort that is opposing God and the God of the universe and his plans is at work. Jesus rules the seen and the unseen. He rules the battle that rages outside of us in the storm or the battle that rages inside of us and around us. And when we are convinced of that, it will change us. When we are convinced of the Lordship of Christ, it will start to change. Sometimes that change happens suddenly in us that we're like, man, I don't have to be afraid of this. Or sometimes it happens gradually as Jesus takes and turns over rock after rock in our life and takes ground as he knocks on the door and says, let me into this room. And so we're gonna look at this under four headings. And uh, I'm gonna try to avoid getting caught up in the textual criticism vortex, but um, four headings. We're gonna just look at demons and I'm gonna try to convince you that they're real. Um, And then we're going to look at demons and people, and we're going to talk about demonic influence upon people's lives. And then we're going to look at demons and Jesus, and we're going to look at Jesus' influence over the demonic. And then we're going to look at demons, people, pigs, and Jesus. Like, just kind of throw them all together. Um, It's like my favorite breakfast. Uh, I had this, uh, this, you know, diner I used to go to, and they had this, I don't know what it was called, but it was like pancakes with meat and gravy and eggs, and they just kind of mushed it all together, and you put syrup on top, and then you left with like, I don't know if my heart's working. Um, So let's look at this. Demons. There is an origin of evil. And so we're going to get kind of systematic theology on this first. Like demons and Satan are supernatural beings that oppose God and his works. And so like the systematic answer, like some things that we can understand about demons are they are formal, formal, former angels 
who have rebelled against God, who now continually work evil in the world. Or that the head of demons is Satan, sometimes called the devil, sometimes called Lucifer, sometimes called El Diablo. Uh, Satan and the demons have been active throughout world history and are still active in opposing the work of God. Demons interact with people, systems, and ideas in different ways. Demons and Satan are under the reign of Jesus, meaning it's not a 50-50 battle and who might win, but Jesus has absolute authority. And they said, what's the appointed time? Are you here to settle the score before then and then the bible also teaches that christians have authority over satan and demons because of the work of jesus christ upon the cross so when we open the idea of demons like it is spiritual warfare that absolutely exists but god has granted people victory over the demonic oppression through jesus and so that's your systematic explanation now let's work through the text so look at verse 23 And so we're going to start a little bit before, but look at verse 23, just kind of to to build this up. And so it says, And when he, Jesus, got into the boat, and his disciples followed, and behold, arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves, but he, Jesus, was asleep. And, And so the picture is the disciples get into the boat with Jesus. This is a step beyond the other two guys. If you look at the verses who said, Jesus, we want to follow you. And he gave them bad news about what it might be like. And it's implied that they turned around and followed away. So they obey and they get in the boat. There is a counting of the cost that the disciples have done. They trust Jesus and they get in the boat when others didn't. So he tells them to, to cross the Sea of Galilee to the other side. And he's like, okay, no problem. We've done this. This is an experience that we have. But he leads them right into a terrifying storm. And so where that says in verse 24, it's a great storm. The actual wording is megas seismos, which means like a great big earthquake, something shaking the foundations of everything they had. It's used in Matthew and Revelation to describe apocalyptic type power. And so a lot of commentaries, because of that language and other language, they say there was some Something about this storm that seemed more supernatural. And so that's why most commentaries take this section and they add it uh, and they talk about the, uh, the demon possessed in the next section and they merge it together. And so look, look at verse 25. It goes on. It says, And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord. We are perishing. And he said to them, why are you afraid? You have little faith. Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And so he, he, he got up, and he didn't give like some sort of mantra. He didn't cast any types of spells. He didn't labor in prayer. He spoke a word against it and said, be still. He rebuked. Like this word rebuked is used almost in all the exorcism accounts. You can see it in Matthew 17 and Luke 9. It's also used when Jesus rebuked the same word, James and John, for when they went out on the missionary trip and the Samaritan village didn't really accept them or bring them in. James and John said, Jesus, just give us the word and we will command fire to just consume them up and kill them all. And Jesus said, that's a bad idea. He rebuked them. It was also used in Mark 8. When Jesus tells the disciples plainly, he says, he told them plainly. And then he goes on to say, the son of man is going to be handed over to the Gentiles and he's going to be beaten and executed. This has to happen. And if you remember, Peter takes him aside and says, no, 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 Jesus, man, we are not going with the executed plan. We are going with the victorious takeover plan. And so don't even talk about that kind of stuff. And Jesus rebukes him and says, get behind me, Satan. He says, your plan is not heavenly inspired. It's demonically inspired. You're speaking the language of what Satan would do to talk me out of God's plan. Get behind me. And so we see this rebuke, rebuke rebuke. We see it happen when he's talking directly to demons. We see it happen when he's talking to people who have bad ideas. And we see it happen when he talks to a storm. Jesus rebukes. And it says there was a great calm. And then verse 27, and the men marveled saying, what sort of man is this that even the winds in the sea obey him? Jesus rebukes the wind in the sea, and they obey, the elements respond to Jesus' word. Sickness and disease respond to Jesus' word. And what we're about to see is demons are about to respond 
to Jesus' word. And so now this week, starting in verse 28, look at what it says. Now, we're going to spend a lot of time in verse 28, and then the other verses, we're going to go a little bit faster. And so uh, don't, don't be dismayed. Don't be downcast. Um, have hope. And so it says this, And when he, Jesus, came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so demons... Like that's what we need to deal with. Like Jesus' absolute authority and power over demonic forces in the world. And, and some of you might be thinking, and if you're not thinking it, people you know who will definitely be thinking, like might be thinking, do you really believe in demons and Satan? Like, are you serious? Like, like, are you really believing and buying into that? Now that we have science, do we have to believe in these unseen forces? Wasn't it the situation, like, people wrote like that because they didn't understand about germs, they didn't understand about imbalances, they didn't understand about those kind of things, and so they made up this idea of demons? Isn't that what's going on? And I'm telling you, that is not what's going on. Do I believe in demonic forces? I do. And so does the Bible. So some reasons for believing in in demonic forces. First, the Bible tells us that there are evil forces at work in the world. Like it attributes the origin to Satan and demons. And listen, if we're willing to believe and trust the Bible when it talks about the goodness of God, we need to accept what it says when it talks about what is wrong with the world. Like what is foundationally wrong with this world? What is foundationally wrong with me? And it speaks about evil and evil influences, and it talks about spiritual forces that are determined to kill, steal, and destroy. So first, the Bible talks about it. Second, it helps me make sense of the world around me. Like, like you have to agree that there's like a lot of evil in the world. Like, I'm telling you, I think the Bible gives a clear, complex description of, of what we see, and we're going to talk about it in just a minute, but like third, like, I think it's the only rational, reasonable conclusion if you're even open to the idea that there is a God. And so let let me explain this to you. Like there's a difference between being an atheist and being agnostic. And typically if you're an atheist, and so an atheist believes there is no such thing as God, all that this world has is what can be seen and what can be measured. And surely these things sometimes act crazy and get out of hand. And you throw enough time on it and it can have really big consequences. But nothing happens outside of what can be measured and what can be seen. And if we don't see it, we just need to look deeper and eventually we'll find it. And we can measure it and observe it. So there's nothing outside of this world that is unseen or not in this realm. And the Bible just doesn't paint that picture. But most people who, if you wrestle with atheism long enough, you don't stay atheistic very long. You usually become agnostic because you start to realize that to claim that there couldn't possibly be a God anywhere, you have to know everything and be everywhere. And so, like an example, how much Spanish do you need to know to know that hola is a word? Not much. I took a lot of Spanish. I don't know much, but I know that hola is a word. My Spanish name in high school was Chucho. I just thought it was the coolest name. My famous word, Spanish word, we actually had this on a test, was ug. It translates as ug. And so, I mean, I just went with it. But you don't have to know very much to be certain that hola is a word in Spanish. But if you think about a different language that you don't have any idea or a language that you have a great deal of idea. Like, how much Chinese do you need to know to be sure that Kuan is not a Chinese character? Now, I just looked it up. I just said, hey, what are the most uh, obscure Chinese character? And the first one, I didn't go with it because I couldn't even say it. So I just bypassed that. I went with number three, Kuan. I don't know what it means, but it has like 15 strokes. I don't even know what that means. But to be certain that it is not a Chinese character. You would have to know all of Chinese to be able to say it. And so when we talk about the difference between atheism and agnosticism, an agnostic says, man, they've wrestled with it and they're just not sure. So if you're open to the idea that there's a supernatural being who is good, why wouldn't you be open to the idea that there are supernatural beings that are evil? The Bible talks about 
evil spiritual influences in a variety of language describing principalities and rulers and authorities. And the Bible talks about Jesus' absolute power over these things. And this is just one place that the Bible talks about supernatural evil interfering with people and causing trouble that find relief from Jesus. So let me just ask you a few questions. When, when you think about evil, why does it exist in all economical systems? Like, like, why does it exist in wealthy neighborhoods and impoverished neighborhoods? Why does it exist on all education levels? Like, it happens among PhDs and it happens with high school dropouts. Like, why does evil exist in both sexes, both men and women? I just think men are sometimes more obvious because we do dumber things. But why does it exist? Why does it exist in kids? And like, right now, if you're like, oh, man, kids aren't evil. You don't have kids. Or you had kids a long time ago, and now you've got the thing called a grandparent syndrome. You're like, oh, that's not that bad. You're like, no, it's bad. Why does it exist all over the place? And the Bible gives us three sources of evil. The ultimate, it says that it, is, it comes from Satan. Like if you look at James 4, 7 through 10, it says, Satan and his demons are fallen angels who are, who are the supreme enemy of God and humanity. Like you can read about that on 2 Peter 2 and Revelations 12 and Isaiah 14, like his description of that. But it also talks about just our world being broken. So like 1 John 2, it says the Bible, it teaches us that there's a brokenness in the world that is upon us. It pushes and pulls on all of us. It doesn't work with us like it should. We invest and plant and drought and calamity still come. Like in addition to the natural world that works against us, there are systems there are systems that hurt people and nations. There's something broken in our world. But the Bible also says there's something broken in you. Romans 7, where Paul talks about, man, there is evil still inside of me. Why do I do what I don't want to do? Like it goes on and it teaches that sin pulled in all of us. Like we fight its pulling and leaning. We're more selfish and vainer than we should be. We want more than we need and we're rarely ever satisfied. When other people have what we want and we don't think they deserve it, we start to despise them. There's something broken around us in this world. There's something broken in us and the Bible calls it flesh. And then it says there's an origin of that brokenness and it talks about Satan and demons. And so the Bible teaches and it describes this supernatural being that is the God in three persons who entered in to save humanity by dying upon the cross. And it describes his attributes. And we see those things live out in this world. But it also describes supernatural beings that hate God and work in people and around and through nations and through systems to influence and lean us that we might work against the kingdom of God. And so verse 28 starts off with demons. And, and then it moves to demons and people. And so demons and people, like it says, evil affects us on a multi-layered and complex way. Like it, it's not necessarily simple. The Bible actually shows a multi-layered and complex system that just trips us up in so many different ways. And so let me explain some of this. So some of these things I want to point out are, are deeper descriptions of this event that will be in Mark chapter 5. And so it just gives, it's actually the longest account of this event. It's actually the longest account in the Gospels of an exorcism at all. And there's some differences. And so this is where I got sucked into the, you know, the textual criticism vortex. And I was like, oh, this is important. And just kind of typed it out. And then I went back and I was like, it's not that important. But I'm going to explain some of it as we go. And so look at verse 28 again. It says, and when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes. Now, Matthew calls it uh, the Gadarenes, but Mark and Luke call it something a little bit different. They call it the Gerasenes. And so while Matthew says the Gadarenes, this is the city, they call it the Gerasenes, which is a different city. These are two cities on the Gentile side of the Sea of Galilee, separated by about 30 miles. And so we have a lot of different reasons for why that might be, that scholars talk about it might be different. But this is actually really easy for us to understand if you grew up in Kansas. 
And so you have one city that's really, really close that almost all archaeologists say, I think this is the place right there, maybe five or six miles away. It's called Gerasa, right there on the Sea of Galilee. And then about five miles away, you have Garda or Gadara, which is where Matthew gets the word uh, Gadarenes. And then about 30 miles away, you have the bigger city, uh, Gerasa, where Mark and Luke record, and that's where we get the Gerasenes. And so like, we have the bigger city that people maybe have heard of, a smaller city that's distinct, and then Podunkville that no one wants to ever find themselves there, but if they do find themselves there, they lie about it and they say they went somewhere else over the weekend. Okay, so this is why when someone asks you, hey, where, where, where are you from? This is why you say Western Kansas. You say, I'm from Western Kansas. Like, well, that's a big area. Like, where where are you from in Western Kansas? And so then you say, ah, man, near Hayes. And they're like, oh, you live in Hayes? No, I don't live in Hayes. So where are you from? And you're like, ah, man, you probably never heard of it. No, just tell me. It's cool. I I know a lot of places. Joaquini. You're right. I've never heard of it. Western Kansas. (laughs) It's so like big city elites are like, man, this is a problem. Small town villas, like this is no problem at all. I wasted your time by saying Joaquini, you know? And so what happens is you have the Decapolis, which all agree this is where it is. The Decapolis means 10 cities, 10 Greek cities. That's why they called it the Decapolis. And so it's all in the same area. And so you have Matthew saying, hey, man, we got a little bit closer, but I'm not going to say the city because that is like, wait, no one knows that. And so we just got a little bit further away. And then you got Luke and Mark saying, man, this is in the province, in the region of. And so this is what I want you to hear. This is a real place that there were real pigs and there were real demon-possessed people who needed the help of Jesus. Like their lives had been so influenced and so twisted and so pulled away that the description of their lives is terrifying. They lived among the tombs. No one could subdue them. Everybody was afraid of them. Real place. But then it goes on and we see his problem with like numbers. And so it says, and when they came to the other side, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him. And so, like, I want to deal with number and then possession. And so first, number, you know, both Mark and Luke say there was one demon-possessed guy. And then you have, you know, Luke, the tax collector accountant. He says, no, 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 man, there were two. And so, you know, people get really bent out of shape of like, man, why are they lying to us? What else are they lying about? And so I just want want to ask a question. If you've seen the movie Endgame, who's the bad guy? Thanos, the purple square guy that just crushes everyone, right? Like, he is a bad mamma jamma. If I'm like, hey, who's the bad guys? You're like, Thanos. Well, there's actually four other bad guys, and I had to look it up because they are called the Black Order, and no one knows their name because no one cares because they're like the weenie sidekicks of Thanos, and so a simple explanation is, you know, as Matthew is writing this, you know, the accountant, he actually counted it up. He's like, man, there's two guys. But as Mark and Luke are writing about it, they're like, man, there was one guy. He was a bad mamma jamma. And who cares about the other guy? He was just like scenery. And so there's other possibilities, but let's don't get caught up on the number. Let's look to the scriptures about what it's saying. And it's saying there is a problem because there were two men who were possessed by demons. And so it says that the men were possessed by demons. The literal language is just going to say they had a demon. And so maybe demonized is a better way to understand the influence and the progression in these guys' lives. They had been influenced and progressed by spiritual forces that works its ways in desires and ideas. And slowly it takes ownership and more and more. And so maybe your thoughts aren't your thoughts. And so let me just bring this, like this is not as much in the idea of, you know, this is not as much in the idea of like quality of possession, but maybe in quantity of influence. And so, you know, like 1 Timothy 3, you can look this up later. 1 Timothy 3 is going to warn us when it's talking about elders, it's going to talk about don't put someone too young there, a recent convert, because they might become proud and being proud puts you under the influence and dominion of Satan. Big deal. Write it down. And so it says something about a proud heart slowly pulls ownership of the demonic in our life where maybe the voice that is controlling our life isn't as much our voice. Or you could read Ephesians 4. And so Ephesians 4 is going to warn us about lies and it's going to warn us about anger. And it says don't give yourselves to these things. Deal with them quickly because anger 
and these lies in our heart give a foothold to Satan. Or if you've been in the Bible reading plan, Acts 5, like terrifying. Acts 5, you have Ananias, Sapphira, and they, uh, you know, they, they, you know, the people, Barnabas sold some stuff, brought all the money. Everybody was like, man, Barnabas, he's a good guy. We love that guy. And like, man, I want people to love us too. And so they sold some property and brought part of the money to the apostles. And Peter kind of gets all godfather with him. He's like, hey, is this all the money? He's like, yeah, man, it's all the money. Are you sure it's all the money? And he's like, yeah, it's all the money. And he drops dead right there. He says, why have you let Satan fill your heart with lies? in such a way to control you. He drops dead, and then his wife comes in, and the same question, she drops dead. And the whole idea is to scare you to death, like, oh my gosh, man, do I ever position myself to look more generous, you know, or more caring? Yes! God, don't kill me! And so the Bible talks about this kind of pull in our life in varying degrees. And what starts off in a situation of maybe a bad habit ends in complete control of your life in addiction where the problem of your life becomes a solution to solve the problem only to make it worse. And all the people around you are begging you to see it, but you can't see it. That's how sin and spiritual influence works. And so it talks about this progression. And I just, I'm going to put the book in. There's a danger in being too spiritual and blaming Satan and demons for absolutely everything. Like there's a danger of like, man, it's always Satan's fault. It's never my flesh or like my problems or my sinful habits. It's never me. It's always Satan's fault. And so you're like, man, my engine blew up because I was late to work. And I think maybe it was Satan. And you're like, man, when did you change the oil last? Like you might need to own that. Or man, I got throat cancer. And yeah, I've been smoking two packs a day for 20 years. Like you're just going to have to own that one all your own. But there's a danger in being too spiritual and blaming everything on demonic activity. And it seeks to minimize my sin, the pull of my flesh in my daily decisions. It seeks to make me a victim of everything. And that is a satanic hold on your life. There's also an opposite danger. There's a danger in being too naturalistic in denying that there are demonic forces at work. And I think the Bible says you are totally ill-equipped to handle the evil in this world if you don't see anything beyond what you can see. See, we've been living like a pill bottle can fix our problems. we've We've been living like if people were just more affluent and had access to better life, then it would fix our problems. But it just makes evil like our appetite grow as we level up. We've been living like if we could just inform people, if they had better access to information, like it would curb the destructive bend, and the internet has proven that is not the case. We have been living like the origin of evil is only one-dimensional on the human part, and the Bible is saying you are too simplistic. We need to think biblically. And when it talks about Satan and demonic forces against us, it means that there are Satan and demonic forces against us. When it talks about flesh inside of you, a pulling for selfishness, and I can do it myself, I don't need God, I'll just work it and find my own righteousness, I'll be able to stand before God because I'm better than these people, we need to believe that it says that there is a flesh. When it says that there is a broken world, and so our hopes and dreams cannot be fixed in this world, We need to stop trying to establish our hopes and dreams in this world because we were created for a world that we live before the face of God. And so none of our hopes and dreams will be fully satisfied here. Like we we live in a day that we're only like willing to say, man, maybe there's demonic activity if someone's head is like spinning around and they're puking up green pea soup and crawling up a wall. And let me submit that if that's happening, you should consider that that might be demonic. But the Bible says these two guys, their lives were leaned further and further away from everything that would help them. But then Jesus stepped off a boat into the shore of their life. 
And so look at this. Like, it's going to be up on the screen. Matthew 4, verse 24 in the King James. And so it just kind of says it, just to show the complexity. The complexity of it, it says this, And as his fame went out through all Syria, they brought unto him sick people. And so this is a category. They, they brought to people who had something wrong with them. And then listen to this description. It says, They brought to him sick people who were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those who were possessed with devils, and those who were lunatics, and those who had palsy, and he healed them all. And so, like, look at the parallels. He's looking at all the people coming to Jesus, and he's saying, hey, some of them had diseases that tormented them. Some of them were paralyzed, and it names a disease that we translate as palsy, but it could have been some other ailment. Some of them were possessed by demons, and then, we don't use this word because it's offensive, some of them were lunatics. Like, some of them, there was something wrong. That word actually means moonstruck. It means sometimes they were okay, but sometimes they weren't okay. And sometimes it's translated as epilepsy, and sometimes that is the correct translation. But I read a lot of commentaries on this, and they said, man, I don't think that's the correct translation. It's making this distinction between what is the main trigger of the problem. Sometimes it's anatomical, and it's sickness. Sometimes it's mental, and it's emotional. Sometimes it's moral, like I need to repent. Repent, and sometimes it's demonically influenced. Uh, Richard Baxter, an English pastor in the late 1600s, he wrote a lot about anxiety and depression, um, and he, they just called it something different. They call it melancholy and much ailment and different things. But he basically goes off this and says, this is what plagues us. And so he says, sometimes your depression could have a physical cause, like in that case, you need, and he talks about nutrition and medicine and rest. And then he'll describe, sometimes your depression could be a mental or psychological cause. And in that case, like what you need is you might be extremely downcast or discouraged, and you need community, love, and encouragement. And then he says, sometimes your depression could be morally driven. You feel guilty or shame because of something you did or something you didn't do or something that was done to you. And then... What you need is confession, forgiveness, and grace. And he says, sometimes your depression could have demonic roots. And in that case, you need prayer and the word of God. And so he says, sometimes, like, if your view is only physical, if it is more physical than the Bible, then you will look to pills and different things to help you, and you'll only be dealing with maybe part of the problem. Or, or if your view of the problems in this world is only psychological, then you're only going to have like talking and acceptance and you're not dealing with another element of what might be driving. Or if your view is it's only moralistic and you're pharisaical, then you're going to walk around and just look at people, man, you need to do better. You need to pray harder. You need to read your Bible more. You need to get your life together. And there's some who are just more superstitious and they see demons behind everything. And they ignore that the Bible talks about flesh and the brokenness in this world. And what the Bible paints is a picture of these things interlocking and interwoven together. And so, like, just ask this question, like, what if? What if the problem is rarely one-dimensional? What if you know a part of the problem, but you're only seeing a part of it, and there's another part that you need to deal with? What if you're dealing with some shame or some regret, but you refuse to go to how you let someone down or how you hurt them? You refuse to ask for forgiveness in prayer. Or, or, or what if? What if you think the problem is just physical or psychological or moral or spiritual, but something is persisting under it? Like, what if you need a more complex view on what distresses you? In the 17th century, Richard Baxter, he would say that your view of the Bible is probably wrong because the Bible has a very complex view of humanity's problems, and it includes a spiritual realm that influences and pulls. And so keep going. We see a little bit of a progression here. Look at verse 28. I swear we're, we're going to go through everything faster. Look at verse 28. Look at the end of it. It says, two demon-possessed men met him, coming out of the tombs so fierce that no one could pass that way. And so what we see in this is like the demonic seeks to isolate. It seeks to hurt. 
It seeks to get in your life with lies for power, and it happens gradually. And so look at that. First, demonic cease, seeks to isolate you. It says, they lived away from everyone among the tombs. And so like the Mark 5 really paints that out, man. Nobody went into the tombs because it's scary. You don't want to hang out there. I mean, and they were living among the tombs, away from community. Are you feeling more and more isolated? Are you feeling more and more afraid of community and yet you're desirous of it when it lives in other people's lives? You're afraid of it, but you're longing for it. Satan, 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 get the name right. Satan seeks to isolate people, to hurt people more. Which brings us to the second point. Demonic forces will hurt you. In Mark 5, it says that they were often cutting themselves with stones. Like, just ask the question, are, are the solutions to your problems hurting you more and more? Have people come to question and to warn you about your life, and yet you see what they're warning you about is actually your hope, and so you keep pushing them away and finding more and more isolation? Or the third thing, the demonic gets into your life with temptation of more power. Like, I really found this interesting. In Mark 5, it says this. It says that no one could subdue them or bind them with a chain. And then it keeps going. And it says that no one could subdue them or bind them anymore. And so that's where we see, like, the temptation of power. Satan doesn't come to you and be like, hey, listen, I want to make you really evil and destroy your life. What do you think? He comes and he starts to pull on the things that we love the most. Like maybe it's career. And he says, listen, man, if you really focus your life on career and making a name for yourself, man, you're going to have power and influence and people are going to respect you. And so you start to think about how do I promote myself? How do I get bigger? How do I make myself influential? And suddenly you're crushing everyone around you for a single goal. And a lot of times it does make you more powerful in that area. Or maybe your idolatry is the fear of men. Like you just want people to like you. And so you'd be really good. You get really, really good at making fun of yourself, making people laugh. You get really good about spinning the story to make yourself look better in the eyes of others. But suddenly, man, you find yourself more and more isolated because no one knows the real you because you can't let them know the real you because they won't love you if they know the real you. Or the idea of just a comfortable life. I just have to have a certain kind of life. And so you start to move people who don't fit in that life out. And people who you thought fit in, who don't fit anymore, you just move them out because you have to have a certain kind of comfort and control. And so you get the house and you get the school and you get all the things that you want. And suddenly you have it all by yourself. You want your family to look a certain way. So you crush them when they don't. See, Satan comes with a vision of something powerful and something beautiful. And slowly you might gain power there with a plan, but it entraps you. And the spirit pulls and pulls and it owns more and more of you. So you can't even see the problem anymore. And then the last in Mark 5 where it says it happens gradually. And so this, this we get more description with Mark. It says this, it says, no one had the strength to subdue him anymore. For a while, people could approach them and talk to them. For, for a while, they could be reasoned with and like make better choices. For a while, they were still among community. For a while. Are you somewhere on that progression? Do you need So if you do, you need to see Jesus. And so first we have demons. Then we have demons and people. And then we have demons and Jesus. 
like the demons have a really great view of who Jesus is. And so just look at this. Like first the demons see who Jesus is. They call him the son of God. It says in verse 29, and behold, they cried out, what have you to do with us, O son of God? Like they're not confused with Jesus's identity. They see that he has final say and he has authority and they see his nature. He's not just a good example. He's not just a miracle worker. He's not just someone to follow and to learn morals from. They They see him as the son of God. Do you see Jesus as the son of God? But then it goes on. Like they see Jesus as having final say. In verse 29 it says, Have you come here to torment us before the time? So they see that he's going to win and he's going to have final judgment. He's going to have final say. They see the time is set and certain that judgment is coming. They see that and they say, But wait a minute. Are you coming early? You know, what, what he says matters. It determines what they can or can't do. They see Jesus as final say. Do you see Jesus' word as final say? Does it have final say beyond the circumstances of your life? Does it have final say beyond what you think should be right or think should be good? Does Jesus have final say? But the demons also see Jesus' authority loudly. Look at verse 30. Look at this ass. Now, now I heard of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. Mark says like 2,000 pigs. That's a lot of pigs. If you're from Western Kansas, you're like, ah, that's not a lot of pigs, but that's a lot of pigs. And so they, they see from some, from some distance, and the demons begged him saying, if you cast us out, send us away into the herd of the pigs. And you're like, you're asking like, why? I don't know. That is weird. And so this is where I got caught up in that kind of vortex. It's like all these different reasons. Oh, man, demons hate to not be in host. And, you know, but I was like, I don't know, man. It was weird. But they said, hey, can we go into the pigs? They're asking for permission. They don't want to just be cast out. Maybe they're scheming, but they're asking for permission. And they're asking for permission in a way that they're just going to kill all the pigs. And so look at verse 32. And he, Jesus, said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. Like, why did they want to go into the pigs just to drown the pigs? I don't know. Theologians talk a lot about it. I don't know. Why did Jesus allow them to go into the pigs just to drown the pigs? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But all, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they write about this event, and they say, man, the demons came out. And the pigs found their destruction in a watery grave almost instantaneously, which should tell us something about the aim and the bent of demonic forces in our life that we befriend and we make alliances with because it gives us power or it gives us something we want in an idolatrous way. And it is bent on your destruction, bent to drown you in a watery grave. And the scary thing is the drowning of the pigs gripped the people's lives in such a way that they couldn't see the value of what Jesus did. So we see demons. We see demons and people and demon possession or demon, demonic influence. We see Jesus and demons, how they see him, how they regard him. And man, we need a whole lot more of that. And then we see demons, people, pigs, and Jesus. It was just fun to list all of them. But look at verse 33. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, look at this, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. They told the whole story, man, Jesus, that big storm that was crazy, you know, it just stopped, and that was really weird, and then Jesus gets out of the boat, he steps onto the shore, and you know, like Crazy Bill, man, Crazy Bill was there again, he and his sidekick, and they ran to him, and they were talking weird, and they were begging Jesus not to do stuff, and Jesus was like, ah, I'm Jesus, I'm going to do stuff, and then all of a sudden, the pigs all freaked out, and they're all gone, they're all gone, no more bacon, I mean, no more, it, it, it's all gone. But they went into more description about what happened to the demon-possessed men. Man, crazy Carl's not crazy anymore. Crazy Carl is dressed. We get the description of him in Mark. He is dressed in his right mind, sitting at the feet of Jesus. And look at what it says. It says, and behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus. Man, we got we to gotta find out what, what's going on here. And when they saw him, they begged Jesus, 
to leave. And he did. And he did. They heard about what Jesus had done for these two guys. According to Mark, they saw them sitting, clothed, and in their right mind. And they were concerned about the financial loss of the pigs. Do you see the danger here? One way that we are spiritually attacked is Satan and his demons have been taking notes upon your life to see what is supreme in your heart. And at opportune times, just like the rising of the storm or a moment that Jesus might intercept your life, they step in and they aggravate the thing that is your first love. And they whisper and they say, man, if you surrender to Jesus, can you be sure that he's going to honor this good thing in your life? If you follow Jesus, are your relationships going to be the same? You don't want to lose those relationships. If you follow Jesus, are you going to be able to be creative and scrupulous in business to have the success that you want? Are you sure you want to follow Jesus? If you follow Jesus, what if he leads you into what he said to those other guys in the first of the chapter? Nowhere to lay your head. Do you want that? And that thing that grips your life is in real danger of you looking at Jesus and saying, leave me alone. Is Jesus pressing on something in your life and it's uncomfortable and you are asking Jesus to leave you alone? What if he gets back in the boat? What if he honors that? What if he leaves you alone? What if you keep saying, no, no, not now, and he says, your will be done? Or are you seeing Jesus doing something in the lives of others, but it just seems too costly? It seems too messy and scary. Like people were afraid of those two guys because they put them in chains and they broke the chains, and that is scary. Darkness is scary. Are you in danger of saying, no, I just can't give my life to that. I just can't step into their lives. I just can't do it. Leave me alone. What if he does? See, the town people saw Jesus. And they saw the people that Jesus had just relieved their suffering. And they saw the loss of the pigs. And they asked Jesus to leave. And it says that he did. 1 John 3, 8, it says that the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. We see that here. We, we see the work of the devil is no match for Jesus. But we have a choice about whether or not we're going to participate. These guys found themselves sitting clothed and in their right mind at the feet of Jesus. And that's made possible for us because of what Jesus did at the cross. Jesus destroyed all the work of sin, Satan, and death once and for all. The remnant still remains because 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. These men found themselves clothed, thinking right before Jesus. Because Jesus was stripped naked and he took all the infirmities of sickness and all the brunts of wind and the assailing forces of the storm. And he took all the temptation and accusation that Satan might bring and it was laid upon him and he died in your place. But are you telling him to leave you alone? Let me pray for us. Lord, as we come and we come to communion, it's an opportunity for us just to sort through what are you knocking in the doors and what are you pressing on and what are we saying to you? And Lord, it's also an opportunity for us to see the multi-leveled effect of evil in our lives. And Lord, some of us just need to be honest and say, man, those are my choices and that's what I'm doing. 
I keep choosing the wrong thing, I keep doing, and we just need to repent. Lord, some of us are suffering from, like, it just doesn't seem like my body is working the right way, and we just need rest, and we need to know that you have full grip on all of those things in our life, and we need to bring it before you and before God's people, and we might need help. Some of us are scared to say, that there are demonic forces leaning heavily upon our lives because if that's true, I don't have control over that. And if that's you, you just need to bring that to Jesus. Ideas and thoughts that take hold and that grip that the Bible in Ephesians 4 just says they're strongholds. It says they're just little foot grips that Satan holds on to. But the good news, you don't have to figure it all out. You can bring it all in one mess to Jesus. Because his body was broken to pay for all of it. And his blood was spilled to pay for all of it. And we have hope because Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. Lord, we need help. I pray that we find hope as we sit and pray with one another, as we go back to get prayer, as we come and just bring what we have to you in communion. We ask for help in Jesus' name, amen. Come when you're ready.